The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, February 23rd, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Protesters in Delhi have been blocking roads. Some cut off the city's water supply by blocking a canal. The protesters responded with violence. Government property, buses and trains were set on fire. All attempts to call for peace have, so far, failed. Since that BBC report came out, some of the water has been restored. You know, it was only a slight majority of the city's residents who were affected. But since we're talking about the city of Delhi, it means 10 million people. There are a lot of people in Delhi. So who were these protesters? Why were they protesting? They were a cast called the Jats. And the Jats are apparently upset that Indian authorities consider them backwards. No, wait, I'm being corrected. It's that they want to be considered backwards. Because if you're a backward caste in India, perhaps in India they are fine with these blunter terms. Perhaps something gets lost in translation. Perhaps it's the Donald Trump imagined land of limited political correctness. But anyway, if you are a backward caste in India, you enjoy some quotas, you get some jobs. And the Jats, previously considered kind of upper caste, want those jobs. The Jats, who occur in much of northern India and also Pakistan, are not seen as traditionally backward. Castes in India, not that much like American class system. In America, you could rise and fall. It's everyone's aspiration to raise a class or two. doesn't happen as much as it used to. But castes are rigid. Castes do not offer mobility. What I'm saying is when you're a Jat, you're a Jat all the way from your first glimpse of Ganesh to your last dying day. Though, with reincarnation, all right, listen, here's, I got to explain this to you. This is my process. I'm not an insensitive person. I'm actually interested in the world's news. I'm not making fun of them. I just got to make jokes. You just got to let me make a couple jokes. It's how I process things. So the Jats are very angry at the government. They want jobs. Some regional governments have classified them as one of the, quote, other backwards castes. The OBCs, this is a real designation in India. The Supreme Court of India might not abide with this. It's just fascinating. Consider us lesser so we can get more. When you have a blunt system like the caste system, I guess you need some blunt instruments. I mean, to correct it, you impose strict quotas, but of course, they could always be abused by politicians. And as we see here in the U.S., the traditional haves begin to feel like the have-nots, and they begin demanding, I want mine. So some nationalists are opposing the Jats, but I'm a realist, and I'm a Jat fan, and I think all of us Jat fans know that when the Jats go up against the Patriots, we know who wins. This is my process. This is my process. You just let me have some of these jokes, and I give you some erudition borrowed as it is from the BBC. On the show today, we talk to leading economic mind and friend of mine, Adam Davidson, about American politics. And in the spiel, the Oscars, I touch a little on race. I talk more about just what a terrible institution I think they are. But first, who to vote for from an economic standpoint?
So as we watch the presidential race, both the Republicans and the Democrats, front runners or exciting candidates like Bernie Sanders and Donald Trump are said to be speaking to the anxieties of the American worker. The American worker deserves to have anxieties. But how smart are their actual proposals? Here to sort through them is Adam Davidson, who is technical advisor to the movie The Big Short, who has a podcast called Surprisingly Awesome with the director of The Big Short, Adam McKay. And you know him from uh, founding Planet Money. Hello, Adam. Hey, Mike. So let's talk about Donald Trump first. I'll put it out there. He says you got to be, you, you, you can't let your enemies know exactly what you're thinking. So we'll take all his stated ideas with the grain of salt that maybe he might be lying to create uncertainty. He said this is a strategy of his. But, you know, he says what people want to hear. Workers feel that they've given their jobs away to China or Mexico. It's true to a large extent. He's going to get better deals with Mexico. He's going to get better deals with China. And it seems like he's just going to, I don't know, be a harder ass when it comes to trade. I don't know exactly what that means. But if we take him at his word, is this called mercantilism? Is this protectionism? Is this a terrible idea? It's obviously a terrible idea. I mean, literally. <laughs> Trump's saying yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, Trump is saying it. I don't think I have to. Look, I kind of hate talking about trade because I live in Brooklyn. I worked at NPR, the New York Times. You All benefit. My... Uh, well, no. All my friends are kind of lefties, oh, and they and and the ones who don't know economics and business are kind. They, they sort of assume trade is bad, oh. or some of them explicitly tra say trade is bad. And it's like the one issue. Pretty much all economists agree, trade is good. Now the impacts of trade are felt disproportionately. We definitely have a big issue that the full weight of trade has fallen more on blue collar people than on professionals, and that's a deep and profound issue. However, there is no universe, backwards or forwards, where less trade is good for Americans than more trade. So what would tariffs do? This is what he's essentially saying. Lots of tariffs. Right. So, so and it, was, it was an idea that people stuck to for hundreds of years, and people on our currency liked tariffs. So it doesn't make you a bad person. Well, they didn't like tariffs. It was just they didn't have taxes yet. Yeah. And tariffs were the one way to raise money for the government. Also, something important to remember is the U.S. economy was, until 70s, 80s, 90s, not a formally closed economy, but was largely a closed economy, you know, a continent-sized economy that largely made money by trading within its own borders. So just because tariffs exist in the 19th century are not all that relevant to anything going on today. Tariffs are a way of transferring wealth from people to companies that compete with imports. They are not a very good way of transferring wealth to workers. I mean, you would, like, let's say we said, okay, we're going to raise a huge tariff wall, 100%, 200%, 300% on foreign cars or on foreign cell phones. There would be some number of Americans, you know, maybe in the hundreds of thousands, maybe in the millions, who would probably have more jobs, Motorola maybe higher workers wages. in Illinois yeah. would be doing well. Yeah. But the vast benefit, the main benefit would accrue to shareholders and managers. And, and, and that is a very well-established fact. I mean, just think like if there's Crest and Colgate toothpaste and there is a law that Colgate just has to charge twice as much as Crest, and mm -hmm. that's just a law. That would be great news for Crest, right? Because Crest can now, they could charge just three quarters more and keep all of that for profit. Yes, there'd be a little more demand for Crest, but overall people would buy less toothpaste. There'd be less toothpaste bought. That increase in cost is not going to suddenly mean America's filled with toothpaste manufacturing companies and toothpaste manufacturing workers. It's just going to be free profit 
for the executives of Crest and not for making better toothpaste or more efficient toothpaste or anything like that. So it's an incredibly blunt, ugly tool for transferring wealth from consumers, which means people, to companies with a small benefit, small benefit, a few percentage points going to a small number of workers. If you replay, say, the last 40 years where America had high tariffs and the rest of the world operated the way it did, China trades a lot with Europe. Europe trades a lot with China. We would still see globalization. We would still see lots of trade all over the world. America would be diminishingly competitive. Yes. Corporations would not be richer than they are now, but they would have they would have a higher share of GDP. So they would be relatively richer and workers would be poorer. So, I mean, there definitely are Americans who would be better off if trade had just never shown up, if no one had invented the uh, you know, shipping container. And But overall, there is no universe in which less trade is better for more people than more trade. Another thing that Trump argues is that we make these deals with Mexico or China and China's better. They run circles around us. Now, this takes into this, I guess, relies on the fact that American workers still think China's economy is going gangbusters, which it's not. But have you, in all the deals you've looked at between America and China, seen things where, wow, they really, they really snookered us on this one? Obviously not. I mean, we are the largest economy in the world. We are, you know, we are whatever we are, 5% of the world population, and we're something like 25, 30% of the global economy. When we walk into the room to negotiate a trade deal, we have almost all the cards. The big fights we have are over these really small special interests, rice in Korea, rice in Japan, where there's like, you know, a, a, a few thousand rice farmers in Mississippi who are calling their congressmen, so their congressmen's trying to get our trade negotiators to help them out. But it's ridiculous. We are the richest, most sophisticated. We have, you know, we have like made, like I have a buddy who negotiated these trade deals for years. He's now Google, one of Google's top lawyers. He, you know, he's, these are the top brightest guys. These are top guys. brightest guys. Like, yeah. it's, who Google won't hire unless you've it, done good on your the trade The whole deals. idea is obviously absurd. <laughs> Plus these trade deals, who is paying super close attention to these trade deals? The companies that are affected and the workers that are affected. Now, I personally, I like trade. I don't like trade deals. I think we should just have like open trade. Like actual, I mean, as, as one economist said to me, a free trade deal would be a postcard. It would not need to be a 5,000 page with lots of special mm-hmm. goodies for different companies. So on that one point, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm agreeing with Trump, but that is an issue. But it is an absurdity. It's just him saying utter nonsense to say we're getting screwed in these deals. In fact, the fact that we take so much advantage of our economy in global trade is a major issue around the world. It is a major issue. We are bullies. We are we can be ugly. Someday I'll tell you the whole story of Antigua. We almost tried to destroy their economy by bullying them over a trade deal. You can't be more of a bully. Like we are Donald Trump-like. Trump like, yeah. We are Donald Trump-like <laughs> already. All right, I want to ask you about Bernie Sanders really quickly. The two big criticisms of him are that he'll never get his laws passed or that if he will, they're bad. And what he wants to do is break up the banks, I think. We all know that too big to fail is a bad idea. But right now, what's the situation with the banks? Should the banks be broken up? They've been reformed. Leverage, which is one of the factors of the uh, big recession, has come under 
you know, has lessened the banks have to have more on their balance sheets than they lend out? Is he talking uh, nonsense, maybe not a Trump-like nonsense, but nonsense when he talks about breaking up the banks, in your opinion? I'd say breaking up the banks is a nearly mainstream idea today among, like, economic thinkers. and You know, just Neil Kashkari, who's the new Federal Reserve governor in traditionally very right-wing Minneapolis Fed. It's out there. I, w- I would guess a majority of economists, they just generally don't like the government setting arbitrary size limits for companies, even if they're Democrats. But I don't think a majority of economists would agree with it. I think we have not yet... There's a big debate. Oh, Dodd-Frank fixed everything, or Dodd-Frank did nothing. Yeah. I think... Dodd-Frank did a whole bunch of things to make that crisis that we just went through less likely to happen or more, in easy, to, same way. In, yeah. or more easy to deal with. Right. We know, because we've done this a lot, that the regulations in response to a crisis, in many ways, they create the next crisis. We're going to have the next crisis. And we should not have too big to fail banks. And it is big and desperate. And there's lots of ways of doing it, some that are kind of more market friendly, some of them are more government or whatever, like government interventionist. I think we need to do a lot more. I think an economy where, I I forget the exact numbers, but it's like the top 20 banks are something like 90% of banking, the top four are something like 60%, and it's very lopsided and it's very scary. So that I agree with. Everything else Bernie Sanders is for, I think, I mean, his broad democratic socialist ideas, that is truly a radical transformation of every aspect of American life. Now, there are people who clearly hear that and say, yes, it is. And that's why I'm feeling the burn. But I personally don't like radical experimentations. I think when you look throughout history, radical transformations from one kind of economy to another generally cause a lot more pain. It's not like America isn't the second or third wealthiest country per capita. We could do better with our distribution. But and, you know, now that oil's down, we might have bounce back past Norway, but we're doing okay. We're doing okay. But yeah. but maybe people do realize just how radical Bernie's ideas are. Yeah. And I know he's not a true socialist. I know he's not a true Marxist. Right. If we became Norway tomorrow, that's a radical shift. I know it's working great for Norway. Norway's a small boutique economy filled with Norwegians. We are a very large continent-sized economy filled with lots of different people doing lots of different things. We have a whole host of traditions and institutions and and we have this weird federal republic with 50 semi-autonomous states he's talking about a radical radical change and even if that's even if that's the destination you like to get from there to here will take a lot of breaking and furniture but the thing i want to ask you though so on the banks on that on his criticism of wall street you think his stated plans are superior to hillary clinton's stated plans no I truly don't like, I mean, I don't, I'm not the, I don't like people getting excited about politicians ever. I am against being excited about politicians. <laughs> what about voting? Do you vote? I don't always vote. I usually vote. <laughs> but I like it best when you're like, okay, I don't really like any of them, but this one is the closest to my views. And so I guess, can I say this? I guess I don't work at NPR anymore. I'm allowed to say. <laughs> say whatever you want. I'm supporting Hillary Clinton, but not because I think she's the most awesome, great, amazing. It's just... I feel like, all right, yeah, of all these... But do you think she'll take on Wall Street sufficiently? No, of course not. Obviously not. But do you think he would take on Wall Street better than she would? Yes. But everything else that comes with him... Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. Is the if I was a single-issue voter... Yeah. Yeah. Could yeah. she regulate Wall Street with his fervor and have that work under her, her worldview? I like... Can I, you marry I guess I that? will say, here's what I like. Yeah. If I could write this election, it is 
Bernie drags her a bit to the left, makes yeah. this a really potent issue where on she financial can, regulation. on financial regulation, mm-hmm. where she has to to win, you know, post Nevada, post South Carolina, to really win, she has to make binding commitments that force her to take this seriously, and then she wins and becomes president. That would be my favorite situation. Obviously, if Donald Trump becomes president, that is unbelievably disastrous. I don't feel that level of fear of Bernie, but I think Bernie is. We're talking about very untested experimental ideas that have the potential to really mess things up for an awful lot of people. So I guess a little bit of Bernie in the Hillary, and it's not like I'm running to the polls, jumping for joy that I get to vote. It's more like, all right, I'll, I'll do that. Adam Davidson bears his soul and reveals his preferences. He is the host of Surprisingly Awesome with Adam McKay, founder of NPR's Planet Money. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Mike. Wait, can I just ask? Don't we already know you shouldn't be excited about politicians? That in and of itself is a really bad thing. You are in the extreme minority about that. Everyone thinks you should be excited. When has being excited about a politician paid off? Like, if you just think in the last hundred years, when has that paid off? Mm, Corazon Aquino. Really? Yeah, not really. She didn't do so great in the Philippines. (laughs) Get to wear yellow a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. And now the spiel, Oscars so bleh. The Oscars are being protested by a couple celebrities held out as an example of Hollywood's diversity problem by most people who've been paying any kind of attention and is always hyped beyond recognition. I am here to say this. The Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences cannot easily solve its diversity problem. But the protest over the Oscars might wind up going a long way to solve the Oscars Oscar problem. So what is the Oscars Oscar problem? Oh, just that they're terrible. How terrible? I find with things that are rotten, like really rotten, useless, broken, we don't even use phrases like rotten, useless, and broken. We use this phrase. What do you expect? Therefore, if you're, you come to me and say, Mike, I'm thinking of failing. What do you suggest? I would say, well, try not to fail. Then you say, no, I'm dead set on failing. I would say, all right, this is what you do. If you fail, fail for quite a long time because then people will stop regarding you as a failure and they'll just say, well, what do you expect? What do you expect? They're the Oscars. What do you expect? It's local TV news. What do you expect? It's a pop-up ad. What do you expect? They're the Cleveland Browns. What do you expect? It's a Paulie Shore movie. When I say the Oscars are bad, I don't mean the ceremony, which is not good, but they're bad at their aim, which is bestowing an award on the best thing in its field. Now, every award decided by humans is subjective, but good award-bestowing bodies, or really anyone that bestows commendations, they put effort and care into their selections. Hey, are we getting it right? Let's look back. What's our track record look like? The Pulitzers, the Booker Prize, the NCAA Tournament Selection Committee, the editors of U.S. News College Rankings Edition, right? They take a little bit of pride and they want to have gotten it right. Doesn't seem like the Oscars do that. I know, I know what you're saying. What do you expect? They're the Oscars. Just indulge me. So we all know the really weird, egregious movies that won, like Ordinary People Over Raging Bull or How Green Was My Valley Over Citizen Kane. And we also know that not every award can always get it right. I mean, let's talk Caldecott Medal winners, right? 1951, The Egg Tree by Catherine Milhouse 
beats if I ran the zoo by Dr. Seuss. Dr. Seuss never won a Caldecott. Now that is a crime. So not all the awards get it right. But the Oscars get it so wrong, so badly, so often, as compared to other institutions that give awards, you've just got to wonder. You know how they say democracy is the worst system except for all others? Oscars are good at picking the best picture except for all other systems I can think of. Let's take critics circles. Different critic circles, LA critic circle, New York critic circle, different critics groups, and they don't always agree, but their, so, their track record is so much better than the Oscars. To wit, the New York critic circle chose the social network as the best picture over the King's speech. In 2005, they got it right when they chose Brokeback Mountain over Crash. They chose Mulholland Drive over A Beautiful Mind. They chose Citizen Kane over How Green Was My Valley. Yeah, but they also went with Ordinary People over Raging Bull. But the L.A. film critics, they got that one right. And they didn't go with Driving Miss Daisy. They went with Do the Right Thing. And they went with Goodfellas over Dances with Wolves. There's no way to prove it, but scan the film critics lists, whichever one you choose, and then scan the Oscars and ask yourself, who am I inviting over for movie night? And he gets to pick the movie. One of these film critics or one of these Oscar voters. It's not just critics. It's the wisdom of the crowd also. So... IMDb has a list of the best rated movies of the year and the best rated movies of all time. We're just going backwards through the Oscars saying, now what movies don't I want to watch? Yes, 1987, The Last Emperor. Maybe it looked good, bored me then, bores me now. Here's some other movies that came out in 1987 and this is what IMDb, the users, say were their favorite movies. Full Metal, in order. Full Metal Jacket, The Princess Bride, Spaceballs. I disagree with that one. Dirty Dancing. Fatal Attraction, Predator, Raising Arizona, Broadcast News, The Lost Boys, and RoboCop. Nine out of ten of those movies are better than The Last Emperor. But the Oscars like safety over anything with an edge. Let's go to the all-time greatest movies as ranked by the users. Regular people, not people who've won Oscars, not members of the Academy. Number one rated movie, Shawshank Redemption. That's a good movie. Did not win an Oscar. The Godfather movies did. Dark Knight didn't. Pulp Fiction didn't. Of course, Schindler's List did. 12 Angry Men didn't. The Lord of the Rings one did. But The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly didn't. And Fight Club didn't. In 1999, American Beauty won the Oscar and Fight Club wasn't even nominated. The Cider House Rules was. And it's not just that IMDb viewers with perhaps years to reflect get it right. Another better way of picking the best movie is just looking at what the highest grossing movie of that year was. It doesn't always work, but it often works more often than not. 2010, The King's Speech. Remember when I beat up on The King's Speech before? You know what was the number one grossing movie of that year? Toy Story 3, a much better movie. It made four times the money. It's 40 times as enjoyable. If you're compiling an anti-film festival of best picture winners, which I've tried to do, I just went through the list. 1996, The English Patient. That beat Fargo. Okay, Fargo didn't make as much money as The English Patient. I'm not saying that Fargo needed to win. But if you went with the best grossing movies of 1996, I'm going to tell you you would enjoy yourself a hell of a lot more than if you watched The English Patient. Let's go down the list. Independence Day, Twister, Mission Impossible, Jerry Maguire, Ransom, 101 Dalmatians, the live action version, The Rock, The Nutty Professor, which Eddie Murphy wasn't even nominated. I'm not talking about the acting Oscars here. The Birdcage, Time to Kill, First Wives Club, Phenomenon, Scream, even Space Jam made more money than The English Patient. 
I will be watching Space Jam before I watch The English Patient again. Feel free to disagree. You know, The English Patient wasn't a terrible movie. It was lush. It looked great. I liked the part with the super sternal notch. 1982, Gandhi, classic Oscar winner, right? A worthy pick, a sympathetic subject. Gandhi didn't do bad in the box office. Gandhi was the 12th highest grossing film that year. You know what was number one? E.T. What's a better movie? Let's go down the list. E.T. Tootsie, an officer and a gentleman. All three of those are much better than Gandhi. Rocky Three, we could argue. I like Clubber Lang. Porky's, okay, we can't argue that one. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, 48 Hours, Poltergeist, the best little whorehouse in Texas, Annie. The verdict. Oh, so much of the time we're lost. We say, please, God, tell us what is right. Tell us what is true. Anyway, I won't do the whole monologue. And then Gandhi. What I'm saying is there were 11 films that made more money than Gandhi. Gandhi's not a terrible film, but if you randomly chose one of the 11, you'd have a much better choice of getting a better movie than Gandhi. 1985, Out of Africa. Oh, God, what a quintessential snoozer of an Oscar winner. Do you know what the number one grossing movie was that year? Not in retrospect, not critic circle, just what people wanted to see. Back to the Future. Now, who besides your grandpa, sorry, your grandpa likes Back to the Future more than Out of Africa. Who besides your grandpa in 1985, Meryl Streep must love Back to the Future more than Out of Africa. You have to. The reason for this, all of this, this whole phenomenon, is actually the same reason why the Oscars got it so wrong this year. It's the same reason why the Academy doesn't get that Creed was a really good movie and that Michael B. Jordan was really good in Creed, to name but one example that would have forestalled this acting categories being a clean Caucasian sweep. They don't get it. They are doddering old people, mostly men who don't get it. Admittedly, they're a Hollywood liberal version of doddering old people, but they're the same demographic with the same old notions about who to vote for and what jokes are funny and how to communicate in 2015 that has been discredited there, but they're holding on to their Oscar vote. Wait, isn't their job how to communicate in 2015 or 2016? It's the same doddering old crowd that said that this year's host, Chris Rock, is trying to rebound from a tough stint as host in 2005. Chris Rock was great in 2005. See, at least they make movies for white people to enjoy. Real movies with plots, with, with actors, not rappers, with real names, like, like, like you know, like, you know, catch me if you can, you know, like, save it, private rhyme. Black movies don't have real names. You get names like Barbershop. That's not a name, that's just a location. Barbershop, cookout, car wash. They've been making the same movie for 40 years. That's right, you know laundromat's coming soon. <laughs> and after that, check cash in place. But as when Stephen Colbert dared to make uncomfortable jokes about the grandees in the room at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, people got their backs up until Sean Penn stood up for one of the subjects of Chris Rock's joke, Jude Law. Forgive my compromised sense of humor, but I did want to answer our host question about who Jude Law is. He's, he's one of our finest actors, and, and 
Those same people who are clapping there, those are the Oscar voters who've gotten themselves into this mess this year. But maybe in correcting this mess, we'll get a little correction in the Oscars. The Oscars always try to play it safe, bland, and uncontroversial. Well, because of that, the exact opposite thing happened. This year, they find themselves boiling in hot water, the target of attacks, and riddled with controversy. You know, it would make a pretty good movie that would never win an Oscar. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi to track down Indian cast clips had to go around the world in 80 days. We needed to hire an executive producer of Slade Podcasts, and it just happened one night. We nabbed Steve Lichtai. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Slate. We call him the great Zigfield. The gist, you can't take it with you. Yes, you can. We're a podcast, especially if you're going my way. In fact, I think we should have a gentleman's agreement that you'll give this cavalcade the best years of your lives, and it'll prove to be the greatest show on earth, on the waterfront, even over the waterfront, via the bridge over the River Kwai, or from here to eternity. Also, life of Emile Zola. Peru, de Peru, du Peru, and thanks for listening.